Hello, Malcolm here, and welcome to this class on the meaning of the resurrection. It's the second of two classes for Easter 2022 for the Thames Valley Churches of Christ. Last time we looked at the meaning of the cross. Today we're looking at the meaning of the resurrection. There is so much we could talk about here. We could talk about it all day, so forgive me for what I have to leave out. But I hope this is useful in our discussions locally, in our locations or our family groups, however we want to use this material. And I'm going to break it into three main areas in the next few minutes. One is we're going to talk about some some of the evidences, not all. Secondly, we're going to talk about some of the meaning of what it means that Jesus has life and then we have his life. And then thirdly, we're going to talk about perhaps the inspiration that comes from looking at the way that Jesus handled his resurrection, if you like, when speaking to people that he encountered, like Mary or Peter or the people on the road to Emmaus. So without further ado, let's dive into our first area, that of the evidences. Now, there are a good number of people who are far more expert at this area of apologetics than me, and I'm only certainly going to touch on a few of the issues. So if you want more information, I would suggest you check out Douglas Jacobi's website. He has some very good material there. But I'm going to start with, firstly, the empty tomb. The empty tomb is, I think, one of the best evidences for the resurrection. The quickest way to disprove the resurrection for the authorities of the day would have been to gather an audience, take them to where the tomb was, open up the tomb and show, well, there is the body of Jesus. And the fact they didn't do that indicates that the authorities believed that the tomb was empty. So that's one thing that we should consider. Did grave robbers steal the body? Fair question. There were grave robbers in the first century and there have been ever since. The question we have to ask is, why would they steal the body? Uh, What do they have to gain? Jesus died with no possessions. He was viewed as a criminal. He was buried without ceremony or even (laughs) the embalming hadn't even been finished. He had nothing worth stealing. Additionally, grave robbing at the time was a capital offence. You could be killed for it. You could be executed. There is an inscription called the Nazareth inscription that was found that contains a decree from Caesar to this effect, which I haven't got time to quote all of, but I'll just give you this bit. It says, let no one remove bodies, them, the bodies, for any reason. If not, however, in other words, if they do so, capital punishment on the charge of tomb robbery, I will to take place. So Caesar is saying if grave robbery happens, then it's my will that people be executed for that. So I think that information and what we've already talked about rules out the theft of the body by robbers, but also by the disciples. Do we really imagine that that terrified group would have the courage to defy this kind of decree from Caesar? And again, let's face it, what benefit did they gain if they did steal the body? It only got them into trouble, got them arrested and eventually killed. The first Christians preached a risen Jesus, which presupposes an empty tomb. Have a look at Acts 2, 29 to 32. Why would they preach something as fact when it could easily, so easily be disproved by a visit to the tomb if it was still containing the body of Jesus? Let's talk about the ghost issue. Was he a ghost? Maybe there were some appearances, but it wasn't a risen Christ. It was a ghost. People at that time surely knew the difference between ghosts and real bodies. The disciples themselves ask Jesus's appearance on the water whether, oh, is it a ghost? And oh, no, no. No, we know the difference between a ghost and a body. That really is Jesus. It's temporal arrogance for us to claim that people in those days were naive about such matters. A quick look at social media reveals that you and I are just as easily fooled as anyone in that era. Gullibility and naivety is not something new. The issue was not their naivety. It was the fact that they encountered Jesus. There were too many appearances over too long a time frame 
for them to be mistaken. Acts chapter 1 says Jesus was with them for at least 40 days. Uh, Luke mentions that Jesus encouraged people to touch him and give him some food. That's Luke 24, 36 to 43. So what did the early Christians believe actually happened? Well, the first sermons recorded all mention the resurrection in Acts 3, 4, 5, 10, 17, and 26. You can look it up. And Paul wrote 1 Corinthians in the early 50s AD, about 20 years after the, uh, the resurrection, and within the lifetime of some who had witnessed the risen Jesus. If he'd been lying, they would have been contradicted him. In 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4, he reminds his readers that their faith is dependent on the resurrection. Why make it the core of your public teaching and the foundation of faith if, in fact, it did not happen and could so easily be disproved? Finally, for this point, how did the church happen? Even if we forget all of what we've been talking about so far, we still have to reckon with the emergence of the church. How did it happen? If Jesus did not rise from the dead, where did this courage, this energy and this cohesiveness come from? What would bind together a group of people, most of whom didn't even know each other before Pentecost? How did they go from being a bunch of strangers to a community exemplified by devotion, love, sacrifice and joy? Have a look at Acts 2, 42-47. Let's face it, the message of the resurrection made no sense to these first century Jews. Not only that, but the Messiah that's been revealed to them is not the kind of Messiah they were expecting. And being monotheistic, the idea of worshipping Jesus was mind-bending, to say the least. Yet, after one speech from Peter, thousands of them are baptised into Christ. And immediately they form themselves into a new community and begin to spread this extraordinary message with great vigour and tremendous bravery. They proved to be unstoppable even when Jewish and Roman authorities moved against them. Opposition could not deter them. Imprisonment could not discourage them. Physical violence could not stop them. And even death only served to spread the message more widely and more rapidly. Have a look at Acts 7, uh, the end of the chapter there with the death of Stephen, and Acts chapter 8, and the spread of the people and the spread of the gospel. What other examples can you think of for a speedy worldwide spread of religion or perhaps a political philosophy? The only ones that come to my mind have been promoted through violence of one kind or another, whether physical or uh, economic. For example, Islam or the Mongol Empire or Western colonialism or communism or capitalism. But this movement spread by sacrifice, non-resistance and love. Uh, what would motivate such a thing? Only something so extraordinary and yet so true that it could withstand all opposition overcome all barriers, and endure anything that the world could throw at it. So believing in the resurrection might be one of the strangest things ever proposed to a person, but it is, on balance, looking at all the evidence, the most rational thing for anyone to do. So we've looked at some of the evidence, there is much more. Now let's talk about, a bit about the meaning, especially the meaning of eternal life. Jesus now lives forever, and that's proof that he can give us the eternal life he promised us. In John 17, verse 3, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. How do we get that? We get that because Jesus lives and is able to give us that life, and he intercedes for us. One of my favorite passages about this is in Hebrews chapter 7. You could meditate on this all day. Verse 23. 
there'd been many priests. Death stopped them continuing. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. He always lives to intercede for you and I. And the confidence of our salvation is based on the fact that Jesus lives and he intercedes for you and I. Exactly what that intercession is like, wouldn't it be fun to know? Is it about him uh, uh, continuing to continuing to plead with the Father for our forgiveness when we sin in this life? Is it about him answering our prayers, taking them to God? I'm sure there's many different facets of that. I'd actually be very interested in your theories on that. Or we could also look at Romans chapter 8, that famous passage about uh, if God being for us, who can be against us? He didn't spare his own son, gave him up for us all. Won't he then give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those who's, whom God has chosen? You and I, huh? Uh, that, that we're going to be okay. He, 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 who is then who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us, for you and me. So what's going to separate us from God? Nothing. No hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, or sword. And we are safe. We are more than conquerors, he says here. This is the life that you and I have, a life that's safe with Christ, with God in the heavenlies. We have confidence about our eternal life because we have been baptized, right? That's how we gained eternal life. In Romans chapter 6, talks about that. We now share in his life, his eternal life. Yes, we, our physical existence on this earth is limited. It will end. But our eternal life begins now and will continue forever in, in that sense. And the life we have now is that is a kingdom life, isn't it? It's a kingdom life. It's a spirit-led life. It's a spirit-infused life because we've been given the spirit of Christ, Romans 8 verse 9. It's a transformed life and an ever more transformed life, 2 Corinthians 3, 18, more and more into the likeness of Christ. It's the fruit of the spirit in action. Eternal life in you and I is us uh, living out the spirit life, that's that the spirit fruit in the way that we live. And so many great passages on that. It's living out the Beatitudes. There's good news to the world that we live like this, then everybody will know that there is another way to live. Real life. In 1 Timothy 6, verse 11, Paul tells Timothy, you're a man of God, so flee from all this, all this uh, sin and temptation, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession and in the presence of many witnesses. He's, I think, implying there that one of the ways to live out this eternal life is to take hold of it, is to say, I want to live this to the max in all my failings and all my weaknesses and all my sins. But how much can I live into this eternal life that is the Christ-like life? I think that's a rather exciting idea. And I'll go back to that Romans 6 passage. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. How exciting that we have this opportunity to have a new life because of the resurrection and our uniting with him in baptism in that regard. Now let's go back to the actual accounts of the resurrection and think about what they are telling us in the way that Jesus interacted with people after his resurrection. And I think the key thing here that I find very inspiring and it draws me to Jesus is that the resurrection reveals the compassion of Jesus. 
So at the beginning of the good news about the resurrection, what do we have uh, back in the Gospels? We have tears and confusion. That's how it all starts. In Mark chapter 16 and verse 3, the women are asking who shall roll the stone away. They don't know what's going to be going on. And then when they uh, meet the, uh, the person in the tomb there that's telling them that Jesus is not there anymore, uh, they go away in verse 8. How do they leave? They leave trembling and bewildered and silent. They won't tell anybody about it because they're afraid. We've got confusion. We've got fear. We've got bewilderment going on. And in John's gospel, uh, Mary, when she's there in the garden, she's gone there uh, to finish the embalming, it says that she stood outside the tomb crying. That's chapter 20, verse 11 of John. As Rachel Newham said about this point in uh, an article on this, the root of our joy as Christians begins with grief. In fact, in John's account, in John 20, have a, have a look there, you'll see that crying seems to be emphasized. She's outside the tomb crying in verse 11. And in verse 12, the angels ask her when she's gone into the tomb, why are you crying? And she says, they've taken my Lord away. She turns around, having, I presume, come back out of the tomb. And Jesus asks her, why are you crying? Who are you looking for? So we've got Mary crying in the garden outside the tomb, cry, crying inside the tomb during the conversation with these chaps. It's not like a little tear, I think, and it's called weeping. So she's got she's got this uh, continual crying going on outside, walking into the tomb, in the tomb, having the conversation, walking back out. She's still crying. Jesus start, talks to her. She's still crying. A lot of weeping going on. And it seems to me there must be a bit of a deliberate emphasis here. The grief comes before the joy. And the grief does last, and it is deep. And other people are confused as well, aren't they? Like the two on the road to Emmaus. I mean, given the, the cultural context, it's strange that the first appearances are witnessed by women. But isn't it also strange that the next thing that happens is Jesus hanging out with two friends on a walk? What an interesting and odd sequence of events we have. And when Jesus asks them the question about, well, what's been going on? They think it's really strange, of course, for him to ask that question. As uh, the article says that I mentioned earlier, uh, it was akin to an alien landing on Earth in 2022 and asking why we've had, why we have such strong feelings about the last two years. You and I know why we have strong feelings about the last two years. Anybody would know. And so, but they, they, they don't understand why he doesn't know. And they say, we had hoped. Luke 24, 21. We had hoped. And those words, those three simple but profound words, remind you and I of where we are. Uh, and, and sometimes we forget where we're going. We don't fully understand what the resurrection is really all about. The resurrection appearances are not what we might expect. We've got women being the first witnesses. We've got Jesus walking on the road with two people. We've got grief. We've got tears. I mean, how would you have um, organized things after the resurrection? I'll tell you what I would have done, I think. I would have had Jesus come out of the tomb. I'd have had him uh, go straight to Pilate and say, Pilate, huh, you were wrong. I'd then have him go to uh, the high priests and say, look who's back. I'd have him talk to the Sanhedrin and the teachers of the law. I'd have him pop in to see Herod and say, you think you're king? Right. I think I have a better claim. And I'd then have him go to the temple and say, hey, temple, <laughs> you know, I, I am back. Three days later, I'm back. I'd have him then go to his disciples. I'd have him then go to his family. I don't know what I would do after that, but that's what I would do. But Jesus, Jesus talks to a weeping woman and confused people on a trek out to who knows where to do, who knows what. 
this confusion is a little illustrative, I think, of the fact that the resurrection is a cause of unexpected things. And it's a cause of unexpected things sometimes in our lives. Jesus, of course, shows his wounds as evidence that he is him. To, he shows his wounds to uh, Thomas. And why, the question might be, why do these wounds remain? Why are they still in him and with him? Not just as evidence for Thomas, but perhaps evidence for you and me. Jesus still has those wounds, even in the heavenlies, as he is now, I would imagine. And perhaps, perhaps, I'm speculating, but perhaps at least one of the reasons he might have those wounds still is a permanent reminder to him of his trauma. And that then helps us be confident that he connects with our trauma, our trials, our grief. All he has to do is look at those nail marks to be reminded of what it's like to live and suffer on this earth. Hebrews 2 verse 18. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And you and I face that. And part of the purpose of the resurrection and the resurrection accounts and the fact there's so much confusion and even grief reminds us that Jesus will remember our grief and our confusion while we're still here on this earth. The Easter story is not only about the fact of Jesus being given life, uh, triumphing over the grave, over death, over sin, but also that he meets us in our lives where we are. He meets you and I in our tears. He meets us in our confusion. He meets us in our fear. He meets us in the garden. He meets us on the road. He meets us in our homes. As the author of the article I read mentioned, a reminder, this is a reminder of the God who meets us in our fragility with his gentleness. He meets us in our fragility with his gentleness. I love that. The, the, a large part of what we're seeing here in the resurrection is a gentle Jesus. Gentle, strong, and, and firm, but a gentle Jesus meeting us where we are, not where perhaps we think we ought to be. I hope this class might have helped you to be even more inspired about our amazing Jesus. We have plenty of evidence to believe he rose from the dead. I can't think of any other rational explanation for the events and what has happened since. We have the promise, the joy of having eternal life now that will be revealed in all its fullness in the next life. But we have it now. Can we find ways to live into that eternal life more fully? And I pray and hope that the way he, Jesus deals with Mary, Thomas, and even Simon Peter later, that his post-resurrection appearances help you and I to understand and believe that despite our weaknesses and our confusion or our pain, Jesus is with us in that. He never forgets his wounds. He can never ignore them. He will never forget them. And he'll never forget the challenges that you and I have. And he always stands ready to intercede for us. That is a comforting and inspiring message of the resurrection. Let me know what you thought. You think. Uh, drop me a line, malcolm at malcolmcox.org. Tell me what's most meaningful to you about the resurrection. What is the, the most significant meaning of the resurrection for you? Something we can discuss in our locations, in our family groups, or even online. Well, that's it for this class. I hope you have a wonderful Easter. Take care and God bless.